Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Lauren Sweeney. Lauren is the founder and CEO of Deliver Zero, which is a company that we have gotten to know really well and like quite a bit. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley. Thank you for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so the timing's really good because you had a, a big day yesterday. So let's start with, tell me what you announced yesterday, and then we'll kind of work our way backwards. Yesterday, City Council, New York City Council, introduced a bill that would mandate a returnable, reusable container option at all points of sale for corporate-owned fast casuals. Okay, so that means I go to Sweetgreen, and now what's different? There should be an option for you to choose. Maybe they, they make a reusable version of the hexagonal bowl, and mm -hmm. maybe they use Artec to track that reusable bowl. But you should have the option to opt in to packaging that can be returned, sanitized, and reused. Good. So um, Deliver Zero, I, th I think listeners can now sort of guess what it is, but give us the underlying concept, how you came up with it, and kind of what the, what the story's been so far. We built tech that lets us track reusable packaging received through any channel. So we could track e-commerce packaging, we could track takeout packaging, we could track any kind of packaging. We started with takeout and delivery because it's the type of transaction most customers engage with most frequently. Here in New York, many of us buy lunch every day, buy coffee every day, and right now all of that comes in single-use packaging. So there's a high volume of transactions and an enormous amount of waste that we integrate directly with delivery platforms, mm -hmm. POS systems, uh, aggregators, to make it easy for customers to opt in with no manual inputs from the customer or from a restaurant worker. So we use machine learning and integrations to make it easy for customers to opt in without having to do anything. Right, so I, I go get a, a cup of coffee or a salad or whatever it is, and I now can just get, do they ask me, do you want this in a reusable container or do I have to ask for it or what happens? Let's say you're ordering through DoorDash. Mm -hmm. You'll see it on the menu, yep. the top of the menu. We make it bright, yellow, yeah. all of that. You say, yeah, sure, I want that. You add it to your cart. After you check out, you'll get a text saying, thanks for making this climate-friendly choice. Here's how many containers you got. Here's your due date to return them. And here's a link to the returns page. It could be as simple as never logging into the returns. You, you could never log into our site. You could just report returns via text, drop the containers off somewhere near you, or you can click on that returns link and you'll see options like order grocery delivery and hand your containers back to the courier delivering your next order. And it needs to be that easy for this to scale. Right. So, so far, what kind of behavioral uh, adoption are you seeing from consumers? We're seeing really rabid enthusiasm from consumers. We see high opt-in rates on delivery apps. Mm -hmm. If you put the choice right in front of consumers and reassure them that this is actually very easy, it sounds new, sounds hard, but you don't, don't worry, do this anything. is hard. Yeah. This, is, this is not going to be hard for you. Customers will take that option. The piece that we're struggling with a bit more is just getting more restaurants on board as rapidly as possible. And so that, let's, that takes us back to the city council bill then. So that would then require certain types of restaurants to at least make this an option for customers. Yes. What we find is some corporations are working with us. We love that. 
many small and medium-sized businesses around the city are working with us, these locally owned restaurants and locally owned chains, and that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But some of the biggest contributors to this problem really won't engage with reuse until it's mandated. Once they do, they'll see that it benefits them in many different ways. But right now, the I'm not going to name the chains that we have maybe not heard back from or have had some that's weird the whole conversations point of this, this with, podcast. but yeah. Well, tell me what they rhyme with. Um, oh. We stood in front of one with city council yesterday. Yeah, I'm familiar with that yeah. one. Um, so, okay. So this option becomes available because the council mandates it. Tell me why, if, if there's significant customer enthusiasm, why do you even need legislation? Why wouldn't the, the market just itself drive this? There is a misperception, and I understand where it comes from, that this is operationally complex. People hear reuse. They see some of the systems that are out there in the world right now that do make it cumbersome for the end user and for the restaurant worker. There's QR code scanning involved, sometimes multiple QR codes scanned per container. That is cumbersome. And we don't even get a word in and explain, we integrate directly with your POS system and use machine learning to scrape order and customer data to attribute boxes to a customer's phone number and nobody really has to do anything. And we restock these restaurants with reusable packaging that's been sanitized basically as if it's single use packaging. We can come in even on a daily basis if they required it with totes full of reusable packaging where we stock them just like they're they're stocked with single use. So for a national chain, like say just a random example, Shake Shack, um, if, uh, if they're mandated to do it in New York and then they realize, okay, this is really easy and our customers like it, is your view that you then don't have to keep passing these bills around the country because then they just realize this is good for business or do you foresee kind of 25 of these bills running over the next couple of years? That's really the open question right now. My thesis in the beginning of our, our efforts to uh, push for legislation like this really began with the idea that if big corporations have to do something differently in a market as big as New York, they're going to do things differently everywhere. Yeah. That said, we've created a very fun and very replicable strategy around this bill and Let's say things aren't happening fast enough still. We could look at other markets where this bill would likely pass and yep. basically replicate our advocacy strategy there. Right. But, I mean, I would imagine most big cities, either in blue states or blue cities in red states, would be pretty open to this legislation. I mean, it sounds like you have an overwhelming amount of support in the New York City Council already for your bill right now. Yes. And it's interesting that Keith Powers, one of the council members who co-sponsored this bill, said yesterday other cities and states around the country look at what New York City is For doing sure. and follow suit. And I think this actually can be an issue that brings people together, uh, red or blue. People really don't like waste. People understand that it's, I can't think of a better word than wasteful right now. Like It's just so resource intensive to create single use packaging and then using it once and throwing it away just feels bad. Yeah. Um yeah, I think that that's right. Look, I mean, based on my experience broadly, what happens in New York is seen everywhere. It's sort of the opposite of Vegas, right? Um, and like, because we're the largest media market in the world and because we're the home of global finance, um, things good or bad that a, that a company is able to achieve here politically end up being 
replicated. So either if it's bad behavior, you can kind of have a chilling effect on other people trying the same thing on you, or if it's good behavior, um, you can replicate it. Such in California, even though it is such a, an even bigger state than New York and a bigger part of the overall market, um, they do their own thing all the time, and they're sort of good at it, but the it's almost like they're just seen as their own weird little thing, and as a result, like, adoption doesn't flow nearly as easily. So, like, smoking, um, New York City wasn't the first place to ban uh, secondhand smoking indoor locations. You know, California did it way, way before we did, but somehow it just stayed in California, didn't expand. Once it happened here and the world saw it, it then just took off like wildfire. And now I think it's the law in like 130 countries or something like that. Um, so yeah, so I, th I think that you're, you're certainly at the right starting point. So let's go back a little bit. Um, what made you start this company? I felt the problem in my own life. Okay. I worked in product, I worked kind of across product CX and marketing roles in early stage startups, mm -hmm. which means I spent all of my 20s working a lot and yeah. also being a single mom. And I lived in Williamsburg when my daughter was in preschool and would go get this green juice basically every day. I'd drop her off at school and would get a bottled green juice. And then I'd order lunch from salad place or sushi place every single day. Yeah. And I'd stand in front of the recycling bins in my office with rinsed out sushi containers and try to figure out where I should put them. <laughs> and it just didn't yeah. work because there was, and then the, you know, the salad bowl says it's compostable, but there's no compost bin in my office. It's confusing. I met my co-founder at a networking event. He stood up and said, I'm working on a zero waste version of Seamless. And okay, that sounds like something I, I could, and he said, I need help on the customer side. I said, okay, I can help on the customer side. Um, I wasn't really looking to necessarily join a company as a co-founder at that point, but within four days, I decided to do that. And All right, so that's, that's a yeah, pretty yeah. rapid <laughs> shift, right? And you have you know, responsibility, you're a mom, and, and you know, starting a, a company is really exciting, but at the same time comes with a lot of risk and a lot of life change. How in the span of four days does your head get from point A to point B? It helps that I'm crazy. Okay. Uh, at the time, I had I had been meditating a lot. I'd been um, working through this Deepak Chopra book and and kind of meditation course, and was just very open. Um, it also helps that I'm crazy, just in general. Okay. I'm fully so anything, crazy. So like you'll just be walking on the Williamsburg Bridge and say, I'll just jump off and see what happens kind of thing. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah the, that one's a little too high. If maybe, there's maybe the money Kotsky in Oscar. it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'd, I'd been ready to kind of start my own thing, be my own boss for a little while. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't too sudden, but I didn't expect to come across exactly this idea. I think when I, I met my co-founder, it was one of those very rare moments in life that if you embrace it and say yes and see where it takes you, it changes the trajectory of your life. And you life. were able to sort of on some level see that and sort of therefore your instinct was to, to follow it. Yes. Okay, and so four days pass, you meet this person at a networking event, four days later you're a co-founder, then what happens? Uh, well, my, my family was very concerned for <laughs> a good amount of time. Um, that That's rubbed off now, I think. Um, and then I locked myself in the co-working space in my building and said, what does this brand look like? And went on Canva and Photoshop. I'm not particularly good at graphic design, but I can I can hack it. 
and figured we should keep the aesthetic very clean. It's hard mm -hmm. to mess it up if it's very clean. And we should start saying, and this is like less of a conscious thought process and more of just what I did, but mm -hmm. I felt like there was a lot of stuff that was being unsaid about single-use packaging. So I got on Instagram and started saying it, mostly in the form of memes, um, which makes me very much a elder millennial, apparently. That's because very if I was yeah. young and cool, I, I I'd be, yeah it, yeah. it would be TikToks and Reels. The, yeah. Those weren't a thing I can't yet. even really do memes with that picture. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really like making memes. And I just made memes, used the right hashtags, got them trending. We started getting a lot of media attention pretty quickly, which was fun, but I think maybe inflated our egos a bit in the beginning and made us think it was going to be easy. Oh yeah, because starting a new company is always easy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it gave us a little boost yeah. when we really needed it. That's good. Just yeah. a, a sign to keep going. Okay. We, we saw good customer adoption really fast. We launched with a totally different product, by the way. I should say that. We launched as a marketplace where you had to search your address and you could only order food in reusable containers through our site. And our site was very bad. And customers were checking out somehow. So the fact that anyone was able to get through checkout at all really proved that we were on to something. Yeah. Like there were people who cared enough about this problem to order from these eight restaurants in Park Slope that were doing it in the beginning and you know, deal with our wonky site, all of that. So we we grew a bit from there. We we improved our site. We got some angel investors in. We got up to 150 or so restaurants in New York. When we and tried, just, how do yeah, you, yeah. So like, you just knock on the door and say, hey, you should do this? Like, how do you guys get a restaurant? Uh, really, I mean, knocking on the door is about right. It's door-to-door -door sales that really get small and medium, small businesses on board. And those are the restaurants that said yes to us in the beginning. And the pitch to them is what? Because ultimately, you know, they might care about climate, but they really care about staying in business because their job is so hard. So what's the pitch to say, you're going to make more money, have a better business if you do this? We tell them they're going to get orders they would not have otherwise gotten, and mm -hmm. they'll make better margins on those orders. And both of those things are true. The margins are higher because the cost of the packaging is lower for them? Yes. Got it. And so that, and then is there sort of a tipping point where all of a sudden you don't have to go door to door anymore? Um, or is that why, for example, the New York law is necessary? It's because it, rather than having to go door to door, it just becomes the legal reality for everybody. There's really two types of sales processes in this business. There's always going to be some um, boots on the ground kind of component. I, we, we need people going door to door and selling into the locally operated spots in whatever city we operate in. Mm -hmm. There's 20,000 something restaurants in New York City. Many of them are you know, single location operators and the best way to reach them is by showing up in person. But there's an enterprise sales side to the business, which I've handled to date my CTO Ashwin has also been helpful with that. So there's there's really two different types of sales and they need to be treated as separate processes almost within the organization because the sales cycle is so different. So, okay. So now you're at, how many restaurants now are you at total? Like almost 200. So 200 restaurants, you got this legislation going and you just raised some, some money for the next round of expansion. Where does the company go from here? Now that we have the tech I described earlier in place, the integrations and machine learning piece, and we feel and good explain about Explain why a reusable container requires machine learning. We need to track where the containers are. This is, yeah, I'm So is I'm there talking, like a chip in the container? Like, how do you know? 
so we can put NFC readers in them just mm-hmm. to, to track the number of usages on an individual container. But to track that the containers are being returned, we don't need anything like that. Um, and some sometimes getting hung up on putting NFCs in in the beginning could be a hindrance. You could get caught up in all of that and, and go absolutely nowhere. So we're choosing to focus on machine learning because we can take order level data and predict the number of containers a customer got. You ordered a salad and you ordered a side, you got two containers. You ordered Kung Pao chicken, you got two containers because when that, that comes with two containers because it comes with a side of rice. Right. When we onboard a restaurant, we map their menu data to the number of containers used for each item. Um, there are some rough edges. There's places where it's imperfect because, say, three sushi rolls might come in one container. But our, our algorithm gets smarter the more it's used. So let's take a step back into sort of climate generally, because that's why you're doing this, right, is, is to try to help the underlying situation. It feels like if you're just a regular person that doesn't work in climate like you do, but let's just say you care about the issue and you're reading the newspaper or whatever it is, it feels like there's a constant barrage of good news and bad news, and it's really hard to know what's what, right? So on one hand, you just see all of these massive environmental real impacts of climate change, right? Rivers drying up, massive amounts of snowfall in some parts of the country, no snowfall in the other, wildfires, hurricane expansions, whatever else it is. But then you also see, like, you know, the U.S. government putting, you know, close to a billion dollars into new climate change programs in the Inflation Reduction Act. You see the EPA came out today with new rules around or proposed rules around electric vehicles. I mean, it seems like, you know, there's innovation like yours sort of happening all the time. So it feels like there's a lot of people trying to do good. There's a lot of reality that's very bad. It feels like we're just in this race against ourselves to see if we can save ourselves before we destroy ourselves. How do you see it? I'm very optimistic knowing what I know about what's possible. Okay. And I find that people who actually work in climate are among the most likely to have a at least slightly more optimistic attitude than the average person who feels very disempowered by the current state of things. Because the average person who doesn't work in climate is seeing all these natural disasters, yep. seeing the you know, Colorado rivers. They're, they're just, we're seeing very real effects of climate change right. in the real world in ways that create billions of dollars of damage. Right. And then all of these solutions feel very removed from people's day-to-day lives and very abstract. And people who work in climate know exactly what types of solutions are out there and the potential that they hold, especially if they are properly funded. And we're starting to see climate solutions actually being funded in the way that they need to in order to scale and create actual impact. That said, I think a solution like ours does help bridge the gap between kind of abstractly understanding that there are climate solutions out there and being able to participate in one as an individual. Because some climate solutions are going to be so technical and so removed from our day-to-day lives that we kind of don't feel them. Yeah. And then some are going to, our our day-to-day lives will change a bit as a response to climate change. Like the amount of resources we consume um, in this kind of distracted way in this country, yeah. like that, that's going to change. We're not just going to endlessly consume resources without really thinking about it. 
For it, me, that's a it, joyful it, thing. It changes because a people change, b laws change that force people to change, or c technology changes in a way that allows people to change very easily. I I would choose the the last one. Okay. Uh, technology changes and most business change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the the thesis I've built my my career on as of late. I think the solutions need to be accessible to customers. We can't expect customers to have to go far out of their way to make it work. But when the solutions are in place, customers are eager to participate. And even stuff like composting is just so much more joyful than throwing things away. Um, maybe it's just because I'm a weirdo uh, and I, I like um, maximizing use of resources, very much a single mom thing. But being able to take my compost and put it in a compost bin rather than just throwing it down the trash chute just feels a lot better as a human being. I think it's very visceral. So how easy do you... So I think that's right. So we know most rational people accept that climate change is very much a real thing. Most people would prefer for it not to happen if possible. Most people prefer to do the right thing if they can, but only at very limited inconvenience themselves. We see that with voting, for example, right? Like people understand they should vote, um, but they're generally not willing to go out of their way to actually vote. So what's that tipping point where all of a sudden it's just become so simple and so easy that you sort of take the inconvenience issue off the table? I think recycling is a good example. Recycling wasn't a thing decades ago. And then as recycling was introduced, people did it. Everyone puts recycling in the recycling bin. And we, we just need a critical mass of people doing it, not every single person. There can still be one asshole out there who just throws a like plastic bottle that could be recycled in the in the corner bin where it, it can't right. be. So re recycling is a good example because everyone in my building like dutifully just puts all their recycling in the recycling bins. The The challenge there is that recycling infrastructure doesn't exist. Well, so that's right. what I was asking. So <laughs> yeah. I have two specific recycling questions. So the first is, right, I like you, I try to put everything in the right bin, but um, you do often hear people say, well, then it all just goes into the same landfill in Staten Island anyway. This whole thing is pointless. What's the answer to that? Uh, it's both. On on one hand, we should all try our best to recycle. On the other, this is a huge reason why reuse is necessary because we just have way too much recycling in this country. The the big plastic industry has just churned out all of the single-use plastic and made us feel better about it by telling us it's recyclable. When it is, we can recycle it. There's just not enough in infrastructure to actually do that. So rather than building out that infrastructure, those resources are better dedicated to building out more circular systems that maximize the life of a material before it's recycled. Yeah. So second recycling question, then I want to go to the, the circular economy. Um, I have read that sometimes the water consumption needed to clean out a product to then make it recyclable does more overall environmental damage than the value of the recycling itself. Is that true or do I just justify sometimes being really lazy by saying, oh, I, I'm just going to just throw this one in the trash because it would take too much water to clean it? Um, I haven't heard that stat. It, it It's not the water consumption that concerns me as much with recycling as like the entire process being relatively emissions intensive. So if we're going to put a material through that process, why not make sure the material has been used to the maximum extent right. before doing that? Right. I, I can't like 
comment in an educated way on the Do people need to clean out a Delivered Zero container before returning it, or can they just return it as is? It's going to be professionally sanitized. So say in an office setting, we're doing more office ordering lately. Yeah. Uh, office workers can put the containers in a bin in their office uh, as they are, and they will be rinsed out before they go into the dishwashing process if needed. Got it. So like if I ordered a salad and I forgot to say no croutons and I just left the croutons in the in the container, that's fine. Yeah, ideally they go in a compost. Yeah, but we're oh. we're trying to be actually less strict about requiring the containers to be thoroughly rinsed before entering back into the return system because one they're going to be professionals yeah, professionally sanitized anyway. Mm -hmm. And two uh, we don't necessarily want to encourage extra dishwasher loads to be run bef at home before. I, for, for me at home, I just throw them in a dishwasher load I'd be running anyway. Right. But I'm just always thinking about where there could be extra energy or water usage across right. the cycle. Right. That so. makes sense. You mentioned the circular economy, which is a really kind of new and interesting concept that I think most people are still not that familiar with. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, I always start using these very niche terms at parties, and people are like, what is I'm that sure woman talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm so boring. Um, so the circular economy is basically just the idea that every material should be used um, again and again for as long as possible, Like to put it in, explain it to me like a fifth grader terms. Um, and that can play out differently in different industries. Like circular fashion, recycling textiles is something that's getting a lot of attention. Right. Recycling is part of the circular economy, um, but has been overemphasized as the whole solution where it's not. And then even something like composting is a circular solution because you're taking food waste and putting it into compost where, where it can then uh, contribute to the health of, um, of agriculture processes. So what are the sectors within the economy that you think kind of circular behavior makes a lot of sense and is feasible, and what are ones where you just think like it's going to take a while to, to get there? I'm one of the most optimistic people probably in the world on all of this. Okay. So That's I good. think nearly everything can and should be circular. Um, I see some of the, the bigger challenges um, in... Um, like building materials, there are people trying to solve that problem, and that just seems hard to me. Um, like making sure that when a, a building is demoed, the the materials can be used again. Yeah. Um, film and TV is another place where I see people doing it. Um, it takes a lot of inventory management and QA, and uh, that that problem seems hard to me. Uh, food and beverage, easy. Yeah. Uh, if if it's being prepared and served on site, especially. Right. Um, grocery is pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Like as a parent of a seven-year-old who goes through a lot of snacks, all of those wrappers are one of the most challenging circular solutions because even though all of those wrappers can be recycled, there's not a good end market for plastic wrap kind of stuff. Right. Like it's more expensive to recycle that stuff than it is. You can't make that money back by selling right. those materials. What, what is the sort of end market that's the most kind of open to the circular economy? Uh, the best end market right now, I'd probably say, is aluminum cans. Um, just are are pretty infinitely recyclable, and they can often be recycled um, close to where they're used. And then there's a good end market for aluminum. 
So aluminum is one Does, of the, yeah. So it's the definitely best. aluminum cans. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your optimism a minute ago. So every day, walking my kids to school, and we pass Union Square, and there's this clock on 14th and Broadway, this giant on, on top of a building saying, base, it's a climate clock that basically says, or at least what my kids take from it is, the world will end in seven years, and we'll all be dead, which is pretty much how they interpret it. You mentioned that you're one of the biggest optimists out there. Tomorrow, when we're walking, and I want to be able to like give them a good counter-argument, what should it be? Some of the smartest people in the world are working on solutions. Mm -hmm. And some of the other smartest people in the world are starting to put real money behind them. I think the climate clock, I walk past it a lot. I used to live down in the East Village and would okay. pass the climate clock all the time and felt like it really contributes to doomerism. Yeah, it's stressful. It, I guess it that's their of, point, but I'm not sure it's productive. I think it shuts people down and makes people throw up their hands and say, okay, I'll just spend the next seven years making TikToks and going viral. Um, because I, I think that's something that, I, I think like Gen Z on one hand is so climate conscious and on the other hand, they're just so mired in bullshit. And yeah, I just cross my fingers and hope my daughter is in the first category. Um, but yeah, I think I think that doomerism really shuts people down, makes them feel like why even bother participating when that's the exact opposite of what we need right now. We need young people really committing to spending their careers in climate because even if we figure a good amount out in say the next 10 years, like our kids are going to be focused on this issue. And yeah, that's that's so all. The answer you just gave though to a certain extent feels like a US centric answer in that okay, we've got talent and money and technology and kind of normative change among Gen Z. Um, is that a global thing or is that an answer sort of like why the U.S. might sort of be okay, although of course everything's interconnected, or do you think that applies everywhere? I think the same thing is happening elsewhere, but one of the, the more concerning things in addressing the climate crisis is that it's going to take real collaboration between the U.S. and other nations and not like Scotland and all of these nice countries that right. actually, they just, they do an amazing job and they, they can, um, but China. And there's a lack of collaboration between the US and China, to put it very mildly. Yeah. And that's concerning. China is addressing the climate crisis in their own way. They've, they've done a few very interesting things in the last couple of decades to say reduce coal emissions and actually make it possible for Chinese citizens to sue the government for coal emissions. Wow. And I'm that, trying to remember what not was not what you'd expect. So like right so 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 on some level China, India, you know, countries that are still kind of bringing their economy and and, and their population into kind of the first world say, well like screw you US like you take your air conditioning and your car and your TV and everything else totally for granted and they're telling us we can't have the same things. Is there a world where people can enjoy all the same consumer and creature comforts that we have here without making the climate even worse? Yes. Many of these developing countries have not had access to energy in the same way we have, that we've taken for granted in the U.S. So there are arguments being made right now that they should have, say, a higher carbon budget mm -hmm. so that they can you know, 
burn through oil and coal and kind of get get to what our baseline has been. The other position is that why why start with the stuff we know that's not working and is contributing to all of our demise? Why not lead with renewable solutions as a starting point? Um, it's a very complex argument because there there is like you said, it's it's hard to say, yeah, like we can have our air conditioners, but you can't have power to increase your GDP. Right. So super, super complex stuff that I find personally interesting and read up on, but I haven't gotten to work on that problem. And I don't know that I will. And once we solve the I whole reuse thing, that's, that's your yeah, next shot. Well, it'll, I think it'll take many, many minds, right? Yeah. Like this is the kind of thing you, you don't want one person in charge of figuring out a problem that big. How optimistic are you? And I, I know we're over time this point, but on carbon capture, because it seems to me that if there's like one thing that could really make a huge difference because it's not just limiting new emissions, but it's actually taking existing carbon out of the environment. Is that a real thing or is that just the kind of thing that people like me tell themselves to feel better at night? Um, I don't want to make you lose sleep tonight, yeah. but the, what I'm seeing right now is that the resources it would take to scale carbon capture, um, some in some cases go beyond the resources currently available or yeah. more resources than it takes to power all U.S. homes for a year. Um, I think carbon capture can be part of the solution but it's not a silver bullet and we have to be really realistic about the resources it, it will take to make carbon capture meaningful to any degree. Right. Yeah. And I would imagine that the only way it works is if governments globally are willing to spend trillions of dollars collectively to, to build this stuff. But then the tech still has to work in the first place to make it worth doing. Yeah. And you probably have to mine for materials that unfortunately tend to exist in unstable regions. Um, all right. How do people on that on that happy note? Uh, <laughs> how do businesses uh, sign up with Deliver Zero, and how do consumers learn more about it? So consumers, it's very easy. Just go to deliverzero.com, type in your address. You'll see the restaurants near you that participate, and you'll also see an option to request a restaurant. And mm -hmm. that feature actually lets you email your favorite restaurant directly, and let them know that you'd like them to use Deliver Zero containers. Um, restaurants can similarly go to our site or just email us at restaurants at deliverzero.com and we really actively monitor that channel. And then everyone, we're always on Instagram at deliverzero and I'm always in our DMs. There are like six of us in the DMs now, but I, I monitor them. Got it. Cool. Lawrence Woody, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley.